Across their 30-year career, REM slipped bizarre, sardonic, and beautiful musical ideas into the mainstream, becoming veritable pop stars while never dropping their tether to their southern folk rock roots. Monster in the whole era is so persona with a capital P. And I feel like the whole album is mixed up in all these different characters that Michael is performing as. I wonder for him if that was attached to like his coming out in any way of using it as like a vehicle to like talk about gay sex. (laughs) That was Stevie Knipe of the band Adult Mom. In this episode of Shatter and Gleam, We'll get into how one of the most influential and beloved alt-rock bands of the 80s and 90s was also a vessel for coded queer yearning. In many songs throughout their career, you could hear that desire flickering through the cracks in lead singer Michael Stipe's voice. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. Michael Stipe sings with a distinctive paradox. His voice seems to simultaneously draw you in and spit you out. It doesn't matter if he's singing something so cheery it's almost sickening, like shiny happy people, or a sincere ballad about waiting out the bellows of depression, like everybody hurts, or even a lovesick wailer, like the one I love. The primary vocalist of the multi-platinum rock band R.E.M. has a way of burrowing into you and latching somewhere deeper than most pop singers, sloughing off the excess, dredging up raw nerve. R.A.M. emerged from the art rock haven of Athens, Georgia at the start of the 80s. They were, at first, a party band that followed in the wake of acts like Pylon and the B-52s. Peter Buck's jangling guitar arpeggios called back to 60s California pop bands like The Birds and The Monkees. But Stipe's muffled and often incomprehensible singing style indicated that R.A.M. was far from a straight bubblegum rehash. The band also took inspiration from acerbic and adversarial New York punk artists like Patti Smith and Television, mixing together sweetness with bite. As their profile rose throughout the 80s, R.E.M. cultivated a sound that blended together elements of jangle pop, folk rock, and punk alike. Stipe's idiosyncratic lyricism and strangely compelling vocal style was a big part of why R.E.M. hit as big as they did. Through half-obscured language, he captured nuances of desire, desolation, and belonging, prismatic emotional shades that mapped readily onto queer interiority long before Stipe himself actually came out as queer. In the mid-90s, he finally gave a clear-ish answer to questions about his sexuality that had trailed him in the media for years. He told a reporter that he had been with both men and women, calling himself a, quote, equal opportunity lech. In 2001, in an interview with Time magazine, Stipe explicitly officially described himself as queer. Certain lyrics in early R.E.M. songs pointed to a worldview outside heterosexuality, but I hear that latent queerness most in the way Stipe stretches his voice into a wail, and, at certain key points, lets it break. You can hear what I mean in the band's breakthrough single, The One I Love, which was the first of their songs to crack the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1987. Stipe's voice strains beyond the tortured romantic narrative he's tracing with his lyrics. 
R.E.M. also sidesteps the typical pop song format here. The chorus to this hit song is just one word stretched across two notes. But there's enough yearning and urgency in that one word for it to more than fill the space of a traditionally structured hook. What's not sung burns through the cracks of what is. I'm super excited that with me to talk about R.E.M. today is Stevie Knipe of the band Adult Mom, who put out an amazing album called Driver. Stevie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I think I'd like to get into it just by asking, when did you first start listening to R.E.M.? What was your first exposure to this band? My first like conscious exposure was in high school when my French teacher was really, really obsessed with the Losing My Religion music video. In that video, like Michael Sipe is like dancing in this very weird way. And he would always walk around the classroom like doing that dance. Um, oh <laughs> he was like, everyone in this class has to watch this music video and like has <laughs> to like this band. Oh my gosh. And I was like, Shut up, loser. But then, like, after college, my friends started to get super into the band because of Scott Ackerman and Adam Scott's podcast. (laughs) Are you talking R.E.M. Remy? Yes. (laughs) And I love the both of them. And, yeah, I just started to, like, listen along to the albums alongside their podcast and got just, like, super hyper fixated and, like, fell in love with them. I'm really stoked you brought up the Losing My Religion video because I feel like that was like one of my first exposures to R.E.M. as well. I didn't have like cable growing up, but I would like go over to my friend's house and watch like I Love the 90s on VH1 or like I Love the 80s. best. The segment on the song and its video was just like full of this kind of like bewilderment. I'm like, we're not really sure why this song got as popular as it did. Um, This video is really weird. But it was an iconic moment (laughs) and like a key part of its era, which like is pretty key to like explaining the appeal of this band is that, you know, there's a lot of it that just like doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like that song especially like does not make sense as being like a huge hit. Like it doesn't have a chorus. Right. There's no (laughs) chorus. There's a mandolin. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. It's so funny in Losing My Religion, where it's like all this stuff that feels like kind of coded, but not really that buried that deep beneath the surface, like references to like homosexual longing. Was that something that you picked up on early in your fandom? Did it kind of like come to the fore, like as you kept listening and kept watching? Like how did that realization sort of come to be? I think I was like subliminally picking up on things as I was listening through their earlier records. And I had mentioned something to my friend Cass about it. And she was like, oh, like Michael Sipe is super gay. Like (laughs) he's been out for like a really long time. Like she used to follow him on Tumblr. He would just post these erotic selfies of him and his partner. As soon as I learned that information, it was like no one could stop me from becoming more obsessed and just like mind blown because they'd never been like presented to me as a queer band. They've been described to me my whole life essentially as like a dad rock band. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like the furthest from what they are. Yeah, definitely. I think like the term dad rock implies like a certain safety and nostalgia and like mm-hmm. being like really well couched and like heterosexuality. And REM goes against a lot of that. But you're right that they're like 
not really framed in pop culture as like a queer band. I've started thinking of them kind of like in contrast to like other 80s bands as being like a little scrappier, a little more like toned down. Like if you think of like the MTV era, you have bands like, you know, Soft Cell and like Culture Club that have these kind of like really outrageous like music videos that are like very flamboyant, like very kind of like overtly queer in the way that like these male singers are presenting themselves. And then you have R.E.M. who's like not necessarily like antithetical to that, but it's like a little bit more reined in and a little bit more in the background. Later, you start seeing Michael Stipe wearing makeup that's sort of similar to that like peak MTV era, like on stage a little bit more. But it was kind of after that wave had crested, you know, like in the 90s and 2000s. I want to interject here for a second to point out that R.E.M. were incredibly reluctant to ride the wave of MTV, even though their own rising career coincided pretty much exactly with the timing of the music channel's explosion. Their very first video for Radio Free Europe is an understated dreamlike sequence that primarily comprises footage taken at the Paradise Gardens, the home and workplace of the local folk artist and reverend Howard Finster. The band's label apparently thought the video was too indistinct to compete with the second British invasion and added live footage of R.E.M. performing to try to spice it up a little, a move the band didn't appreciate. In his R.E.M. biography, Perfect Circle, Tony Fletcher points out that Peter Buck in particular had a marked distaste for music videos and artistic genre, while Michael Stipe just didn't want to do anything visual that he didn't have artistic control over. What are some of the other visual strategies or musical strategies that you see the band using to kind of walk that line of like giving just enough, but not as much as maybe some of their contemporaries? It's such an interesting question because I feel like their whole thing is based around the line between intimacy and distance and how they toe that line. And they're always like giving like just enough for people to kind of hook onto them And I feel like it's like their earlier career, like pre-Monster, because Monster is like camp glam rock. (laughs) Right. There's all these like writers that would talk about how they had like a feminine approach to musicality. Jangle rock, jangly guitars. People would be like, oh, it's like arpeggiated and it's not this like macho overt power chord, (laughs) which is really interesting. (laughs) I've never thought about like gendering a guitar riff, but <laughs> makes sense. the feminine urge to play an arpeggio. <laughs> like it's so funny. I guess they had like this like softer approach to performance and to arrangement that was like in contrast to like I don't know Boston or something. Totally, like just big chords, like downstrokes, and then like big solos. The strategy of beckoning some people in, mm-hmm. you know, with like certain coded ways of speaking or singing or playing like that has like a long history I feel like like using like choice words or like tones of voice to be like hey like if this is for you you'll hear this and you can like come a little bit closer and check it out yeah but and I think a lot about Michael Stipe's performance of like the mumbling in the early days mm -hmm. of like having this kind of persona of mystery around the lyrics and there are some songs that people still don't know like what the official lyrics are and that's like really intentional on their part later on in their career I think like the first time they put a lyric booklet on an album was green and they only 
put the lyrics for one song because they were like, we want you to know the words to this because this is important. It's very intentional what they're holding back and what they're like letting us have and understand. And I think a lot of that could be queer signaling. It's just like really beautiful how intentional that is. Totally. Can you like think of like a specific example of like a song or like a moment in a song where you kind of like feel that pull, especially? Oh, yeah. The song Pretty Persuasion is like really interesting because it's really clear and overt about bisexuality or like having a crisis of who he wants to be with or sleep with. And like the lyrics are literally, (laughs) he's got pretty persuasion, she's got pretty persuasion, goddamn your confusion. (laughs) And like that's like one of their earliest records. And I was like shocked. I'm like, who was like not picking up on this? You know? (laughs) And even like he said in interviews, he's like, I literally like, was confused as to like why people were confused like when I came out because that was there all along. But it's that thing of like, it is kind of muffled like underneath the sound and like the song itself. And it's not necessarily like the central like tether of the song. When I listen to it, I think more of just like pining in general until I hear that like pronoun change and my ears are like, oh wait, did I, is that a real thing I heard? And then like, have to go investigate it. There's a lot of songs from like a lot of different bands that kind of just fly under the same radar. Like I'm thinking of like Welcome to Paradise by Green Day, you know, where there's like the same pronoun switch and there's still like a lot of people who just like don't realize that Billy Joe Armstrong is bisexual. Yeah. Goes over, goes over their heads or even just like Against Me songs where like Laura Jane Grace, like long before coming out was like singing about like be being a woman, basically. Sure. Can you like tell me more about how Michael Stipe's like vocal style across like R.E.M.'s career, like both the early albums and like what came later, kind of like accentuates that like switch and that like shadowing and then illuminating that kind of like toggling back and forth between like exposing and concealing. What is it in his voice that like lends itself especially to that kind of strategy? His vocal inspirations are like Patsy Cline and like Skeeter Davis and like old female country singers Mm -hmm. and shockingly also Eartha Kitt which I found out recently he like wished that he had her voice and all of those singers especially like I think of like Patsy Cline and like how she had been able to pull in a listener and it's like a signaling that she's giving off and I think that's something that like he has really attached to his vocal style is so cemented in how the words sound and less of what the content is at the beginning. Their first top 10 single, I think, the one I love, and just like the flights that his voice takes there. It's like very much like pining and longing mm. and, and yearning and all those all those good gerunds. But what I hear is like n- nonsense, if that makes just saying like the word like fire, you know, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where he's just like, I am like burning inside with my like despair and yearning and I just I'm just firing off syllables and this is all all I got at this point I love that too it's just the same words over and over again the whole song Mm -hmm. and that's like also interesting I'm like how is that a hit yeah it is really interesting that like that was like their first big hit and then like still like their most mammoth hit to date is like losing my religion which is Mm -hmm. just like another wounded and like searching and confused sort of song that doesn't make a lot of literal sense to me 
I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to like how they reach that position in the mainstream in pop culture as like being seen as like a very authentic kind of like masculinist like rock band when when they were starting out it was like a lot more of a heightened sense of like both their emotionality and their silliness Mm -hmm. at the same time if that makes sense and also the fact that they like Peter Buck didn't really know how to play the guitar that well and that felt like antithetical to kind of like masculinist constructions of like virtuosity in rock how do you think they got to that point where you know a lot of indie rock bands or bands whose like authenticity is kind of like part of their image making like point to REM as like this godfather figure some of it I I really think is their southern roots as they're a rock band but a lot of the times I feel like they're like kind of a country band also kind of a folk band they play with genre a lot but I think like some of that authenticity is just coming from like the Athens scene in general but I think like a band coming up through like college radio and through um a tight-knit music community there's like this authenticity that you kind of just like have to have in order to like thrive in the community like that in a tight-knit type of like niche but also like they were like four dudes who like drank a ton of beer and would like have fun together and like show that playfulness and silliness there's like one of my favorite videos of them it's just like an acoustic version of don't go back to rockville and like they're all definitely like a little drunk or like just definitely acting like super silly and like michael's doing this like over exaggerated southern accent performance and this is like super early rem and they're just like four guys hanging out (laughs) but like playing this beautiful song that is like so sincere and lovely so i just feel like they've always had this like lightness they're like yeah we're rock stars but we're not like rock stars (laughs) right yeah do you think that that levity can kind of like provide like an entryway into some of the heavier material they get to is that like a portal For sure. The portal of what we were talking about earlier is like not being really to comprehend lyrics and understand it like makes you listen closer. I think as a band, they kind of like have trained their fandom's ear over the years to be like ready for an album like automatic for the people. And then disrupting all that. Being like, like, you know what we had, you know that that was great, that like real sincere, intimate moment we had together. But um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing "Crush" with eyeliner now. Literally, and it's like, (laughs) like for lack of a better term, it's just like the horniest album like ever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so like maximalist. Like it was like one of the most like resold like CDs because everyone Mm -hmm. was like, yes, new REM, and then so many people were like, what. Is this? I personally am a, obsessed with that album, but I'm a monster apologist for sure. They were like the biggest rock band in like the world at that point in their mm-hmm. career, and I think it's like really honorable that they were like, okay, well, let's like flip the script and like try something else. Um, and it's also like right off the heels of like Michael Stipe coming out like publicly. Monster in the whole era is so like Persona with a capital P. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the whole album is mixed up in all these different characters that Michael is performing as. And I just like I wonder for him if that was attached to like his coming out in any way of not necessarily like hiding behind something, but using it as like a vehicle to like talk about like gay sex. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it 
there there must have been some connection between moving from songs about kind of like sublimated queer desire and like yearning. It's like, oh, I want I want you so much, but there's an obstacle <laughs> to kind of like going into like fireworks and glitter bombs and like big guitars and big choruses. And just kind of like having a party about being gay as opposed to like being in a room, like agonizing over it. The contrast between like Night Swimming, which in my opinion, their best song ever. But that is like to me the queer desire, like longing for utopia pre Sufjan's Predatory Wasp. Like, (laughs) yeah. What, like that song would not exist without night swimming. hundred percent. Night swimming is like the pinnacle of, of that feeling that we were talking about. And then like they put out a song that's like crushed with eyeliner that is completely like the opposite. And it's like, but both songs are about joy. You know, there's mm. like the queer joy is in, in both records and especially both songs like night swimming is so tender and it makes me feel like a child every time I listen to it. And it's like this very sweet portrayal of love and then (laughs) monster is also a lot of queer joy but in like just like a kinkier way and in like a maximalist (laughs) way where michael sife has just been like i don't care about the gender like i'm oh i'm an equal opportunist like (laughs) yeah the the well-founded tradition of like coming out without like coming out in like the traditional way it, it reminded me of like morrissey's like non-coming out and it's way yeah. of just like i'm sexually oriented towards humans and that's mm. all i have to say about that i wanted to go back a bit to sure. the athens scene and i wanted to see how you see ram rising in the wake of these other bands that are coming out of athens especially the B-52s that kind of like blew open the scene in like the mid late seventies. Because like, I feel like they're both super specific bands with like super specific, like vocal styles and vocal strategies. Like Fred Schneider is like mm-hmm. a one of a kind singer in a lot of different ways. Like how do you trace that lineage into R.E.M.? I get like emotional thinking about the B-52s because for one, I don't think that they get their due for the doors that they had opened. Like Totally. Kate Pearson is one of my favorite lesbians of all time in the world. And (laughs) I never was like presented with like how iconic she is. And everyone in that band is so iconic. But yeah, I think that like they had this, they were like a party band. And that's how R.E.M. started. They were like a party band. They just did like covers and that's how they started playing music together. I think it's like if there wasn't the culture of like partying and being in a tight knit Georgia liberal arts school (laughs) vibe, then like we probably wouldn't have R.E.M., which is so interesting to me because I went to a college, I went to SUNY Purchase and when I was going there, it was a super tight-knit close like indie rock scene mm-hmm. a bunch of bands came out of there like Mitski came up in that scene yeah. and I think a lot about how community and how bands before you like even if it was just like they had graduated a year before you you just like looked up to them so much and I think that there is just like this lineage and this like m- mutual respect for each other how do you see like the movement of R.E.M. from being uh, first like a local favorite and then like a kind of broader like intercontinental cult favorite into this like global phenomenon really like as you said like one of the biggest rock bands in the world like how do you how do you see them ascending towards that like apex? 
I mean, it's like something I feel like a lot of people have tried to understand and like hack for a while about them. They've been able to create this like loyal, super diehard fan base while also like appealing to the masses. Like REM fans are so passionate about loving the band. Like everyone that I've met who loves that band is like, we want to talk about that band for hours. It was almost like shocking when they got picked up by Warner Brothers and went major but it's like they were able to hold on to their fan base because they didn't like quote unquote sell out they kept making in my opinion like some of the best music of their career they were able to figure out like how to make a pop song in a tongue-in-cheek way i think a lot about shiny happy people (laughs) yeah even the band is like annoyed by that song I think it's, like, freaking genius. One, like, you have Kate Pearson, like, on backing vocals. You have this, like, automatic camp element to it. (laughs) Definitely. Like, it's, like, they're just, like, kind of mocking, like, what a pop song is supposed to sound like and what the lyrics are supposed to be. Where it's, like, the more and more I listen to Shiny Happy People, I'm, like, oh, this is kind of, like, a sad song. Totally, yeah. There's, like, that hint of melancholy, like, seeping through. Here's this, like super um, digestible like pop song that is going to do really well on the radio and on the charts. And then behind that, like you go to out of time and then there are like just these like really weird, like instrumental tracks with like spoken word and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's like they, they were like sometimes use these like super melodic, like pop songs as like a door into like their more introspective and weirder stuff. Totally. It's like you can immerse yourself as much as you want to. Mm -hmm. If you want to go all the way in and all the weird stuff, you can. But if you just want kind of the the most digestible, most like satisfying peaks to rest on, like you can do that too. Stipe has talked a little bit about that duality that Stevie just touched on. Because Losing My Religion is far and away R.E.M.'s biggest hit, and because it's so melancholy and severe, it tends to tinge the image of the band as a whole. But Stipe sees himself just as much in what he calls their quote-unquote fruity bubblegum songs. In a 2011 interview with The Quietus, Stipe said, quote, Many people's idea of R.E.M., and me in particular, is very serious, with me being a very serious kind of poet. People have this idea of who I am, probably because when I talk on camera, I'm working so hard to articulate my thoughts that I come across as very intense. But I'm in Shiny Happy People, Stand, Pop Song 89, Get Up, too, our Fruit Loop songs, end quote. Those two emotional poles make up a big part of the engine that propelled R.E.M. forward as far as they managed to go. They also revealed a depth to Stipe's persona that was hard to resist. Like how he toggled between concealing his words and revealing them, he could cycle through grim tragedy and candy-coated optimism within the same album, appealing to listeners' empathy and their whimsy alike. I want to ask, like, what kind of influence has R.E.M. had on your own practice as a musician and a songwriter? Me as a person, if I like something, it's like I, I love it. I'd never loved a band that has had so many different eras and has such a extensive body of work and has had such like a long lasting influence on 
music and culture that like I've been able to like investigate before and in like the falling in love with the band and falling in love with their music it's almost like I've wanted to kind of try and replicate how they create and how they've created albums and they got me thinking about persona in a really specific way and also just like musicality in a totally different way I think it's just like yeah like when with like loving the band so much I just started to listen deeper and really get into like how a song is constructed and also like how a band can last for that long totally they were together for so long and never had like a messy drama like breakup situation there's like longevity in in their craft I'm at least trying to take that with me as a musician Stevie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for gushing about REM with me. <laughs> I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad you're able to make it. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Cheers. In a 1984 interview with Record Magazine, Michael Stipe said, quote, To give away everything is never good at any time, even in a marriage or love affair. You never reveal everything to the other person in that love. There's always something you return to yourself. I think that's real important." End quote. R.E.M. give away plenty in their music. In its tunefulness, in the satisfying click of a well-considered lyric falling perfectly in meter, in their bright and jovial sense of camaraderie. But there's always a current flowing back into the group. When the music reaches you, it gives a sense of leaving you too curling back up into itself, taking a shape you can't fully perceive. That feeling of retreat is present in R.E.M.'s moodiest, most tortured songs. It's there in their brightest, shiniest ones, too. You can hear remnants of that strategy in the band's long aftershocks. When the Goo Goo Dolls paired Amanda Lynn with blurred lyrics about wanting an inaccessible lover on their smash hit Iris, they were carrying some of what R.E.M. had helped surge to the forefront of American popular music. The same advance in retreat, not to mention the abundant use of chamber folk instruments, can be heard throughout Sufjan Stevens' catalog, too. On Car Seat Headrest's 2015 song, Strangers, Will Toledo sings, quote, When I was a kid, I fell in love with Michael Stipe. I took lyrics out of context and thought, he must be speaking to me, end quote. That's the magic in Stipe's songs. They're almost designed to be severed from context, to take new shapes around their recipient before ultimately slithering away. When a song like Losing My Religion leaves you behind, what does it take with it? What previously unknowable desires can a song like that illuminate in a flash before leaving you alone with the afterimage? Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, 
Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. SiriusXM Podcasts.